Welcome to the Possibility Podcast. I'm Mel Schwartz, your host and thought provocateur. I've been practicing psychotherapy for well over 20 years. During that time, I've been so fortunate to witness countless breakthroughs while working with people, whether one-on-one, as a speaker, in professional trainings, or in workshops. The insights that I've garnered have inspired me to write over a hundred articles and several books, including the companion title to this podcast, The Possibility Principle, which you can find wherever books are sold. On this and every episode, I'll be introducing new ways of thinking, relating, and communicating to help you truly thrive in your life, to reach the possibilities that you may long for. Think of this as a new game plan for living. Thanks for enjoying my emerging community of possibility seekers, and I hope you enjoy the show. Hello, and welcome to today's episode of the Possibility Podcast. Today, I'm going to be sharing with you a rebroadcast of a great interview that Paul Samuel Dolman conducted with me just a few months ago. It was based upon and catalyzed by an article I had just written called Rethinking Our Relationships. Paul got in touch and asked me if he could interview me on this very vital subject. It was a wonderful interview, and Paul is a very skilled, insightful, charming provocateur. So I hope you enjoy today's episode. Listen in. Welcome back, my beautiful audience all over the world. I'm excited today. We have one of my favorite guests, a regular. What a privilege to welcome back my dear friend, Mel Schwartz. You know, Paul, you make it challenging for me to leave my ego behind when you talk that way. Uh, I'm just being authentic and people know who listen to the show and also have been on about 10 times. So it's pretty obvious. I like having you back and you're the easiest, most open guest. When I reach out, you always say yes. When? Well, you know, you have mastered the art of the question I'm bowing. Well, what inspired me to reach out again is this brilliant, brilliant piece you wrote called rethinking relationships. And we have a link to it. It's up on LinkedIn. I've shared it wildly mostly to women going, wow, interesting, and men going, "Uh uh-uh. Let's talk about it first, and we're going to dive in. We're going to go where we don't even know yet. You present a whole new perception, perspective on relationships that really resonated with me. But before I dive into that, can you first lay out the conventional Newtonian approach that treats both people and relationships like machines? This is what we have. Our view of relationships, moreover, our view of life, is still regrettably indoctrinated by 17th century thinking. This was called the machine-like universe coming to us from Newton and Descartes, the philosopher. So in a machine-like reality, we are separate from each other like cogs in a machine. Now, for many people, thankfully, you may have fallen in love, had that experience of eros, where you didn't feel so much like one separate from each other, but there was a merging. Similar to what clinicians would call codependency in a negative way, in the positive way, falling in love ought to feel a bit codependent. We're hanging on every word. We're tuned in. There's a healthy autonomy, but like in a Venn diagram where the middle circle is shaded, there's a sense of us. But the way we live, 
the way we're indoctrinated to live. And the rule book of relationship has us over time separate out, become self-interested, lose the connectivity that inspired us and engaged us. And it's a rule book of relationship that doesn't work. It doesn't succeed. So that inspired me to um, really draft part of what's in my book, The Possibility Principle, and create this article called Rethinking Relationships, Paul. Six steps to a happy relationship is not going to work. A relationship uh, shouldn't be a how-to manual or a guideline. Uh, relationships are not machines or devices to be assembled. You know, at times in couples counseling, people may ask me, can I repair their relationship or is it salvageable? And that question points to the problem. A relationship isn't a machine to fix or salvage. It's a place where two hearts engage. And so our expectations are just not sufficient when we think of it in terms of repair. We have to listen to the words we use. They are not insignificant. So what we want to do is learn to rethink relationship no different than we would rethink our own lives. So that relationship with self, relationship with other, is creative, evolving, complex, uncertain. We're doing a dance with each other where we both learn and feel challenged and engaged. And it's a whole different framework of how to engage life. Wow, so well said. And I agree with you. It's more like an ongoing open-ended experiment, a highly nuanced dance. And I almost thought of it as a process akin to creating a piece of art. Yes, very much so. Um, and the art I would compare it to would be sculpting. Uh, because your fingers are in the work, and as you're sculpting, arguably, you never have to be finished. You can keep crafting and sculpting. So relationship is and should be an art form as opposed to a manual. And the sculpting of the relationship is, by definition, the sculpting of yourself as well, because it's inseparable. You are part of that relationship. You're in relation to it. And then I was thinking about this because we've talked before. And I thought, doesn't our primal old brain's need for certainty when it's overly dominate, dominant suck the life force and the romance out of this dance, this sculpture process? You know, my very, very old friend, Oscar Wilde, you have to be very old. Oscar Wilde famously said, uncertainty is the essence of relationship. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. My error. Uncertainty is the essence of romance. You know, as you know, Paul, in my book, the embrace of uncertainty opens the doorway for so much. And so Eros falling in love was, of course, an engagement in uncertainty. But what do we do in relationship is so quickly we default to predictability. So if uncertainty is the essence of romance, then predictability must be the death knell. And I got to say, I see this more often than not, these deadly patterns. So it seems as if you need a healthy balance of both the heart and mind. And if you notice, I put the heart first, because I believe for me, at least in my life and my relationships, they're much richer and have much greater depths when they are heart dominant, that the heart dominates and then the mind sort of carries out the will of the heart. But you need, an, you know, some mind so you can run the show. 
But if it's mind dominant, I feel like you get into this old brain reptile thing and you kill it. Well, yes, but it depends upon what our mind is telling us. So if our mind is territorial, if our mind is defaulting to matters of right versus wrong, and if we haven't learned the skills yet to communicate effectively, that all gets in the way of the heartbeat of the relationship. Communication is the heartbeat of relationship. Many romantic relationships, they're in the cardiac control, cardiac care ward. So that means the communication isn't there. So we need a new picture of what relationship looks like. I'm fond of saying one shouldn't say I'm in a relationship. That sounds like a container, right? What we should say, and it sounds a little awkward, we should say, I'm committed to the process of my relationship. So that allows a sense of becoming instead of being. See, there it is, whether we're going to be in flow or we're going to be static. So um, that process of becoming is essential to the relationship. It's a commitment to your growth and your self-awareness. So relationship becomes a co-participatory dance and it embraces uncertainty. I love the way you said that. Well, it really is. If it's going to succeed, it's co-participatory. We're both creating the relationship. And in creating the relationship, Paul, there is no occasion in my work as a therapist where when one person either was seeking growth or challenged in a crisis, that that did not evoke at the same moment an opportunity for their partner. The question is, will I react and default in a fearful way, or will I take this challenge and open to it and ask myself, what's in this for me to learn? What is it that my partner is seeing in me that I don't see in myself? The, the questions we ask ourselves here either open the process or shut us down. That was a brilliant part of your book, too, because the quality of your life is the quality of your questions. And what I love what you did here, Mel, is the conceptualization is really the key because it sets the whole tone. So, And that would then greatly influence the style and the energy of the communication and of the questions and of the, percep the perceptions. Very much so. Your book and you and your work layout tools role play with me here. Because if somebody says, I know people are listening and they're going to go, they always want the mind wants some concrete specifics. So here's a, a dilemma. Uh, she or he comes and says, I feel like, you know, we're just playing roles. We're stuck in patterns. The life of this, this, this thing has gone out of it. But I want to somehow find a way back. I want to create new life in this. What should we do? The very first thing is you should share that desire with the other person. Share that with the partner. Um, in a way that you want to couch as safe so they don't feel threatened. And you want to shape, share it and frame it in a way that's hopeful and aspirational. Like, what would that sound like? You know, wouldn't it be great if we could learn to engage each other a little differently? Remember how exciting things used to be? Um, I think we could get back there. I'm not sure how we would do it. How do you feel about that? You see, you see we move into it, what I call a shared inquiry. Shared inquiry is the core piece of communication. You open to wonder, 
and it doesn't come forth as a challenge. It doesn't come forth as a criticism. It's let's wonder about this together. Why couldn't we? We may not know how, but the first step is, wouldn't it be great? Well, let's suspend disbelief. Let's talk about what that might look like. That's co-participatory. It's not a rule book. It's not a guidebook as to how to do this. I love that. It's not 10 steps. So I'm going to flip it to, what if I'm the person where my partner just said that to me? And I'm thinking, oh, she's going to dump me. She found someone else or she doesn't like me. What's wrong with me? Here she goes again, criticizing, you know, how hard I work and, you know, all that bullshit. Okay. So, so my counsel to that person, if, if, you, if that person's listening into this podcast, what you want to do is share your vulnerability. Don't act strong because acting is weak. When you, when you share your vulnerability, the other person's listening. So I would then say, you to, I would suggest to that individual that they say to their partner, their wife, their partner, their husband, you say, you know, when you said that, I felt myself feeling threatened. I had thoughts that told me that this is a preface to your moving on, or maybe you've already moved on. I just want to share my fear with you before we move forward and address what you said. Now you've created an opportunity for them to either sadly validate what you were fearful of or no, that's not at all what I was thinking. I don't want you to feel threatened. I'd like for us both to do better together and feel more joyful. Don't you want to feel that way? The key to communication or a key is to learn the art of communicating whereby we don't make accusations of threats. We don't act defensively. We share openly what is making us feel anxious or fearful, not by turning it back in a threatening way, oh, so you're leaving me, but saying, this is what your suggestion brought up for me. Is that what you're thinking? We ask questions. We don't make statements. And there's a beautiful nuance you did there. I want to point out to the listeners and to affirm you and I, that I heard. When you presented, you invited them to share first. So it wasn't didactic. It was, it was curious, like, hey, this is my intention. Obviously, you would have ideas, but you didn't lead with that. Like, now I'm going to tell you what we need to do, which is going to, I believe, find probably less of a home to land. But if you said, gee, if that sounds good... Do you have any ideas? Invite them to share first. You first. I want to seek first to understand and then be understood. Yes, very well put, Paul. It's really around re-envisioning what we mean by the word commit commitment. Um, when we commit to a relationship, what are we really doing? We're making a statement that I will hopefully love you forever. We're making a statement of monogamy and fidelity. Those commitments are to outcomes, and regrettably, they fail more often than they succeed because we're not committing to the process, we're committing to the outcome. It's like, you know, if you have a kid in school who's getting C minuses and they say, you know, mom, dad, I've decided I'm going to get an A this semester in this course. And you say, that's great. They're committing to an outcome. Now you ask them, how are you going to do it? You want me to get you a tutor? Are you going to study more? How are you going to do it? What's the process? Well, if they say, I don't know, 
then the outcome's not likely to succeed. We have to commit to the process of relationship. That's the pathway. So the process is everything you and I are talking about now. Engaging the relationship differently. Embracing our vulnerability. Opening up to the vast opportunities of learning how to communicate effectively and coherently. You know, I have two chapters in my book around a new method for communicating, um, which we won't have the time to go into today in detail, but just to suggest to the listeners that there's a whole brave new world of communication that's open to you. And it's not your fault. You don't know how nobody ever taught it to us. But if we were taught this in school, it would be a different world. That's been my monster takeaway, not only with you and countless shows, but over 500 shows, especially around relating to the world, ourselves and others, that it's not the standard curriculum in life. We learn so much meaningless shit like Paul Simon sang about in Kodachrome. Yep. It's a wonder I can think at all. And yet the most essential tools are verboten, taboo, uh, shamed. Uh, you know, the person that seeks therapy is somehow weak when they're really strong. And this sort of beautiful, what I would call cutting-edge stuff, which to me seems essential, is relegated to the outskirts. But luckily I have this platform where I can bring it into the heart of the matter. And that is the heart of the matter. You know, that question in regard to therapy, common question is, do I need therapy? And then my response is, that's the wrong question. The question should be, could I benefit from therapy? <laughs> and I frankly don't know who couldn't. I have and will and will continue to. Everyone can benefit from therapy. See, do I need therapy? There's a fearful quality to that question. Like, is there something wrong with me? Right? We need to depathologize this. Life is complex and life is challenging. If you can meet a guide along the, along the road to assist you, why wouldn't you? I'm thinking of the exercise metaphor. Do Would I benefit from exercise or do I need exercise? And to me, right. this whole process of life, this I call it the grand experiment and experience, is like going to the gym. And every day, the healthy choices I make benefit me collectively and in the moment. And when I make less healthy choices, I have that outcome. But it's one little choice at a time. It's being being present and trying to do the best we can. And then forgiving when we miss the mark out of ignorance or a shadow or for just being human. Allowing ourselves that quality of being imperfect. So coming back to relationship, Paul, I think there is a presumption amongst most people that other people are happier. Other people's relationships are happier. Um, the abysmal rate of disappointment, if not outright failure in relationship, is essentially due to the fact that we're thrown into it without education, without understanding. And unless you are that rare individual who was fortunate enough to live in a home where your parents were models for a wonderful, loving relationship, then how would you know how to do it? Or fix a computer or a car or fly a plane. And by the way, all of those things are less complex than dealing with another human being in an intimate, long-term situation. Oh, absolutely. Because they're not Newtonian. <laughs> it's, not, it's not a machine to be fixed. 
There is a manual for how to fix a machine. Am I picking this up well, right? I feel like right now, 2019, this day, this epoch of time, we are in a major transformation from the Newtonian into the quantum. Whether the species collectively gets there or not, who knows? Honestly, who cares? I do a little, but I have only myself that I can influence. Uh, but isn't some big shift going on, Mel? Is, are you picking this up? Well, you, as you know, Paul, my work is devoted to that shift, and my life has been. Um, when people have asked me, why has it taken so long to shift from 17th century precepts? This is now three, four centuries later. I think I have stumbled upon a primary answer, and it speaks to a different part of my work. But when we think and speak using the to be verbs, is, am, are, was, be, been, and we use them in virtually every sentence, those words are fixed. They are inert, inert, unchanging. They are objective rather than subjective. They are the language of Newton's worldview. So if we continue to think and speak with each other using to be verbs, we remain stuck. Change is hard. We become victims. I'll give you an example. In a conflicted argument, one person says to the other, you are so unloving and insecure. Now look at the word are. So I teach them, let's say that without using the word are. And after some training, they'll say, when you talk to me that way, I, it makes me feel unloved. Now, that's a subjective statement. And when you speak subjectively, the other person's listening because they haven't been accused of anything. It opens up the doorway for compassion and empathy. I, I gave a talk at Fenway Park, a TEDx talk called Change a Word, Change Your Life. And we're incredibly... The audio went down and it wasn't recorded. So we're rescheduling the talk. But I wrote this, the article, Change a Word, Change Your Life, in regard to what happens when we remove the to be verbs. And it's the last chapter of my book. Change becomes accessible. We can start to re-envision reality and our lives when we remove these stuck, inert verbs from our thinking. And think about your own role in your own life. Someone's had a core belief. I am not, I'm not smart enough. I am not smart enough. That's fact, fact, unchanging. Now say it without using the word am. I feel like, I, I, I feel stupid. I feel unintelligent. Okay, if that's how I feel, then we can go to, why do you feel that way? And feelings are subject to change. Am, is, be, they're not subject to change. They're stuck. You're a cog in Newton's machine with the two B verbs, and they're destructive to relationships and intimate communication. By the way, I love that topic so much. We did a whole show on it. You were gracious enough again to come on, and that show got tremendous feedback, and people are saying this is changing my experience of living because language does change everything because it's a symptom for thoughts and perceptions and beliefs. So, bravo. You know, when you just have sliced and diced a few of these things, I had to wonder, did your mind always work this way and so brilliantly and so interesting? Even as a kid, you have an ability to look at stuff and everybody for 
2,000 years or hundreds of years has looked at it a certain way and just taken it as a fait accompli. And yet, I don't know if you were dropped on your head. I know you came in on a spaceship with me, but you have a way of looking at it and going, what if we, and then you kind of deconstruct it and build it a little better. Has this been a quality you just were born with? And I know you developed it. I believe that we're all born with that potentiality, with that possibility. Um, But more specific to your question, no, I was not this way. Um, I remember my mother in her 90s saying to me, Mel, how did you get to be like this? When did you become this way? So I had an epiphany. Um, It began with some reading I started to do in my late 20s. And then as I was turning 40, I had a def- what I call a defining moment. I was in business and living what I thought was the right life, reasonably successful, married, two little kids, big house, big mortgage. And I had an epiphany, uh, which was, I can't do this anymore. I need more meaning and purpose in my life. Um, ultimately, that led to a divorce in my life, and I raised my sons on my own. And I went to graduate school and I stumbled upon the principles of quantum physics. I am not a scientist, don't much understand science, but the principles were astounding. They simply are inseparability and uncertainty. And I thought, if life is uncertain, why do we need to think of uncertain as a pejorative, a negative? And in fact, uncertain equals possibility. I gave, as you know, Paul, I gave a TEDx talk on how to overcome anxiety by embracing uncertainty. That shift began for me 25 some odd years ago, and it, it infuses every part of my thinking and writing and wondering. So to answer your question, no, I wasn't always this way. I had an epiphany and a few defining moments, and here we are. Just a quick moment here to remind you that we are 100% listener supported. So if you go to patreon.com backslash what matters most, you can contribute any size you wish from $5 a month to $100 a month. Hey, you can even become an associate producer like Angel Kim. So if you love the show, if you want to see us do more, support us in any way. Your contribution matters. Much love. Now back to our fantastic guest. I'm glad you answered that because then no one can cop out and go, well, I don't have Mel's gifts. And while I'm not apt to quote the so-called teachings of Jesus, one of the things I did embrace was ye too shall do greater things than I, which to me is the essence of the possibility principle. So if somebody's out there, if they are walking on water and changing everything and saying that's not a big deal, it's all inside of you and you can change anything and anyone can do it. That, to me, is sort of my life philosophy and mantra. And I, I came by it sort of like you did. I bought in, although I felt like it wasn't real. And at the same time, my 40s without kids, was successful in the entertainment business, had a beautiful partner. Suddenly, I started meditating and going to healing sessions and didn't want to do what I was doing anymore, even though I was printing money. That was the end of that relationship. And I don't blame her. And she was in a different place. And it worked out beautifully. But... For all of you listening, 
we're, I feel like we're butterflies telling, talking about our past lives as caterpillars, and that's all right. The caterpillar wasn't wrong or less. And not everybody, not every bud turns into a flower, and the bud is no greater than the flower. I, learning and what we call intelligence, I think, is completely malleable. Just speaking again personally, I was more or less an average-minded guy, and I was an average student until midlife. And then I had a different thought, which was, what if I'm smarter than I think I am? Um, You know, the brain doesn't produce consciousness. Consciousness leaves its mark on the brain. If you're walking at the beach and you look behind you and you see your footprint in the sand, the sand didn't produce your footprint. Your foot left its mark in the sand. Our thoughts and our feelings leave their mark on the brain. So intelligence, I do not believe, should be, our concept of it should not be limited to the innateness or the potential of our current level of intelligence or awareness or playfulness or a sense of wonder or a sense of awe. As you referenced, Paul, the most powerful questions in the world start with the words what if, but not in a fearful what if in a wondering what if. Driving home from work one day, uh, 25 some odd years ago, I thought, what if I closed my business? And what if I pursued what felt like real passion and intrigue to me? That what if led me to be here right now in this conversation with you. We must ask ourselves, what if? And from a non-fearful, I'm an eternal being having a a mammal based experience. I'm here for a short time is this. What would I do if I'm eternally safe without hurting someone else? Not crazy risks. Like I'm not going to go on that go swim with the great white shark expedition, at least not yet. I love that. The non-fearful what if. And I have a theory, if I could be so bold in terms of your intelligence, a perception, even though you've been on a lot, perhaps... What happened was you finally found something inspiring enough to activate all that intelligence and curiosity and wisdom that was in there rather than what had been presented to you up at that point. So you felt like, oh, I'm not that bright. No, those concepts just weren't that interesting to the kind of intelligence you had. Precisely. And that, I think you, you did a wonderful job of framing that there, which is intelligence simply requires being activated. Now, I'm not talking about the student who can get straight A's because they're organized and they can give back the perfect results in testing and writing papers. They may or may not have activated their active intelligence. Because for me, active intelligence is an an engagement. It requires a creativity. Um, Look, we famously know that Einstein's teacher said he'll never amount to much. Mine said the same thing. <laughs> well, you're in good company. It's sadly one of they were right in terms of me, but not Einstein or you. But it's all right. I'm happy. <laughs> well, it's just important to to think to yourself, what if in a positive way? You know, there are people who go through life with the feeling of, yeah, sure, why can't I? And there are people who go through life with the dominant belief of why I can't. And that creates a divide in human experience. In my book, I explain how we've come to these beliefs about ourselves, which I call 
confining moments. They can find us. And what we need to do to break through and create a defining moment when we break out of it. Um, but ask yourselves, I'm saying this to the listeners, of course, what are your core beliefs about yourself? And how did you come to those beliefs? And how do you know them to be true? Great questions again. I want it for the listeners also for their benefit and for my own heart and to give you a shout out because you helped me very clearly in a relationship that I was in for a few months recently. And you, what you did is you helped me appreciate the beauty and allow it to be what it exactly was and not force it to be what it wasn't and thus create a lot of suffering. I met a wonderful woman. And we talked for some other reason. I think we were about to do a show or something. And I said, oh, I have one of the greatest therapists in the world on. I might as well bounce this off of you. And I could see it clearly for what it was. But there's always that other part that wants to recast it for what it thinks it needs. And that's when you get into a lot of unpleasantness and suffering. Who wants to be remolded rather than appreciate the tree that grows a certain way rather than try to bend it or plant it or curse it. And you... So what you did was you said, hey, you see it, allow it, appreciate it. It has a time. And I was able to do that. And it just bared so much fruit and so many gifts. So thank you for that. And for anyone listening, you could pick that up. You, you, put, that, you put that beautifully. See, we, we try to control out of fear. All we can do is move in, engage, participate in, in a mindful way. Uh, set our goal to engage in the process where we move our ability to communicate into places it had never been before by embracing vulnerability, by speaking subjectively always, not objectively, and then we're in the process of becoming. It will be what it will be. And speaking directly to that, a few times I had deep core fears that felt like weaknesses and in very deep, intimate moments, I shared what those were. And she said, oh, I know. I know you felt that way. And then she reassured me that that wasn't a truth. And it was incredibly healing. I want to encourage people to do this. It felt very vulnerable, which is a beautiful feeling, except when you're feeling it. It's beautiful after. But then it creates tremendous intimacy. And another point in time, she was a very beautiful woman physically, but even more beautiful on the inside. And when I said that I could love and appreciate her without ever touching her in a romantic, sexual way, more than once I had to say it because of so many advances from others, that she said, and I said, you could even live with me and I would just love to be around you. And she said in a very vulnerable, open moment, well, what would I ever bring then here? And I felt, oh, it allowed me to express how beautiful she was just to be around and that it wasn't tied to her physical beauty and that if anything... If she wasn't as pretty, we might even be able to get closer because of the walls that had to be erected because of the physical beauty. That sounds profound. It was a beautifully profound experience. And now we've decided that that period is over very lovingly and very cleanly. I'd say there was maybe 40 hours of sort of like, oh, but I felt like it was a great bookend. I put it on the shelf. I didn't want to reread it. Right. But I was so appreciative for it. But yet... And then after that, it just felt light and there's nothing but gratitude. And again, the gifts are here. There's like, I'm looking at them. The gifts are everywhere. How can you fault that? Only a fool would. And it reminds me of the great Byron Katie who's been on the show a bunch of times, loving what is. Don't go to the vegan place and keep asking for hamburgers and then complaining. 
Yeah, although I'd say loving what is, though, ultimately can have us crash into a wall because there's much that is, which arguably I wouldn't love. Are you going to talk about politics? <laughs> you know, yes, and beyond politics, there's violence, there's hatred, there's all the isms. I don't love that. I may hopefully be able to see them as outcomes of fear and insecurity and self-interest so I can understand them. And this is the only opportunity I have to engage it and help heal, heal it. But I can't say I've never been comfortable with love all that is. And I'm not challenging those who do feel that way. I respect that life philosophy, I'm simply saying it's not mine. And I'll piggyback on that version because there's so much that just I recoil in horror from more lately than ever while appreciating the beauty more lately than ever. There's some paradox. When I love what is, I love this whole grand experience of being. That said, when I see a light turn from yellow to red, I stop. And I stop because I respect the boundaries of limited life, mortal time. I try to support people that are, and give them a platform that are creating love in the world and unity rather than hate. I will go out of curiosity to the darker places to listen for as long as I feel comfortable. And I'll listen to people. And I love the overall process while like on a menu... I might love the restaurant being down the street and the people there, but there's a lot on the menu. I don't like some of it. I don't want the liver and onions. I'm going to choose what I like best. But hating it will only eat inside me, and I don't want to do that. Now, this is a real challenge. So if anyone's listening, especially anyone who knows me, knows I have not mastered this, especially in our political climate. This has been one of the great tests uh, shattered any false beliefs I had about being even remotely enlightened. But so there is that distinction to me. It's not just this generic passive bypassing method of life. I can really get mad. And I love that too. Well, that's your full engagement in the process. So much of your book, and it's so brilliant, is about staying in the now, the present, where the infinite quantum possibilities do exist I want to acknowledge it's not easy and it takes a lot of practice. And then once again, it's a process like fitness. Any tips, wisdom, advice, guide, guiding things you could say to the listeners across the world on this that might help even a tidbit? Think about what you aspire to, how you aspire to feeling, existing, relating, or things that you'd like to achieve in your life. And ask yourself, what do I think it is? that gets in my way. And how do I know that's what it is? Look to your core beliefs. And I know I said this earlier, but look to your core beliefs and to any core belief that you have, which speaks to fear, avoidance of uncertainty, uh, senses of feeling inadequate or not good enough. Render that simply a belief, not the truth. And then ask yourself, if this belief weren't true, who would I be free to become? And then just head down that path. I love that. And so much of what you also say, what I hear in the subtext, is being okay, not only with uncertainty, 
But by being okay with being uncomfortable for periods of time, not in a terrible situation, but just being uncomfortable in the transition periods, the growing periods, if you can move through that and stay grounded and present, the rewards are enormous. Well, just remember you referenced before going to the gym. When we work out, we embrace and welcome discomfort to build muscle, to get into shape. It should be that way in all aspects of our life. Oh, yes. Gosh, yes. Well, I'm just so grateful for you and your ease. And I love our dialogues. And for everyone listening, Mel and I are kind of semi-covertly tossing around some wonderful possibilities where... We might take this show on the road. So put love out there. If anyone has any ideas or they would like to see Mel and I in their little town hall, their little theater, maybe even their living rooms, send me an email. We might show up and have a conscious, open, quantum conversation with you. What do you think of that, Mel? Looking forward to it. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Possibility Podcast with me, Mel Schwartz. To learn more about this topic and related subjects, please be sure to check out The Possibility Principle, my book at thepossibilityprinciple.com. I always welcome and look forward to your feedback. Please leave a comment at the show notes for this episode at melschwartz.com slash podcast or simply send me an email at mel at melschwartz.com. You can also use that email address if you'd like to be a caller on a future show and have a topic you'd like me to discuss. If you never want to miss an episode, find The Possibility Principle in Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. And be sure to hit that subscribe button. You'll get new episodes as soon as they are released. And if you know anyone who might benefit from The Possibility Podcast, please tell them about the show. Thank you for listening. And until next time, have a great day and keep summoning up those new possibilities. Thank you.